Coming up this week, off screen. Dracula and the boys check into Hotel Transylvania 2. Joe Wright reintroduces us to Peter Pan. Carrie Mulligan becomes a suffragette. Ben Foster gets with the program. More Laushi uncovers censored voices. Guillermo del Toro takes us to Crimson Peak. And Elijah Wood has cooties. All those to come and more off screen. This is. This is off screen. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. I'm Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. So should we start with the suffragette I this week? I think we will. Yeah. I, I keep saying suffragette as if I'm saying courgette. Is it suffragette? Suffragette. Jet or jet? <laughs> I can never get this. I would say jet, not jet, because I don't think... So it's not like courgette, it's courgette. Courgette. Okay, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you never watch Mary Poppins? My mum is... Suffragette. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I've forgotten Mary Poppins. My information on Mary Poppins now comes from Saving Mr. Banks. So right, unless of course. It's, yeah. Unless it's you know recounted to me in the voice of Emma Thompson, I remember surprisingly little. Mm. <laughs> um, right. So suffragette, suffragette. Take your pick. Uh, well, this is uh, this is not the story of the suffragette. Which you would assume to be, you know, a, a, a biopic of Emmeline Pankhurst, who, for the sake of argument, we should point out is played by Meryl Streep in this film. But it is instead the story of a suffragette. Maud Watts, played by Carrie Mulligan. You can't just call it a suffragette, though, can you? Well, she's, she's an integral suffragette, but okay. she's not the not integral. The, yeah. She's not the. That's that's Pankhurst, that's yeah. Streep, and her 60 seconds of screen time. This is <sighs> Maud Watts, Carrie Mulligan, and her very, very long amount <laughs> of screen time, because <laughs> it's pretty much all on her in this film, cool. really, isn't it? There's very few scenes that don't have her in. When you I think believe it's all her. Yeah. Right, so, general gist for this one. Maud Watts is uh, she works in the the wash house in you know up in the 1920, 1910s isn't it 19, 1910s just before World War One yeah. isn't it it's about nineteen twelve hmm. I think uh, works in the bathhouse uh, is basically becoming rather let's just say slightly miffed and disheartened by the treatment of the women around her and decide and inadvertently becomes a part of the suffragette movement not for the political gain that comes with earning women the right to vote but for the inherent lifestyle changes which may warrant which may come about as a result of it here's a clip if we got the vote what would you do with it Maud? do the same you do with yours sonny exercise my rights exercise your rights you're a suffragette now? One of those panks? No. Mrs Miller is. You know how they like to talk? You spend your time with her, that's what they'll call you. I'm only looking out for you, Maud. I know. That's all I've ever done. The timing of this one, you have to talk about first and foremost, because the timing of the release of Suffragette is something quite interesting, <laughs> yeah. given that you can't open a newspaper or click a link nowadays without you know, some article from some female yeah. filmmaker or actress talking about the treatment of women in film. <laughs> what are you referring to, Evan? Well, funnily enough, just before we started recording, we, we were yeah. talking about Jennifer Lawrence did it this Absolutely, week. Yeah. The week before that, we had Meryl Streep. The week before yeah. that, we had, uh, was it Rose McGowan that week? Uh, the week before Rose that, Rose McGowan has said something. Uh, Gina Davis, obviously. Gina Davis, sorry, Gina Davis the week before Streep, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's so obviously it's it's a bit of a hot button topic mm. now, and with you know a more vocal press than we've ever had before, 
the platform is there now more than ever. And of course, there was the incident at the premiere of Suffragette in which... The protesters. Yeah. The protesters laid down on the red carpet, which, uh, well, it made, it made an impression, didn't it? It did. It did. It got, some, it got some controversy. It made the news. Yeah, fair enough. So, of course, the timing of releasing this film in 2015 makes unbelievable sense. You couldn't ask for better timing. Uh, this is obviously from Sarah Gavron. It's written by Ab uh, Abby Morgan. And everyone involved in it is... is it's strange. They're not doing anything outside of their comfort zone. Literally nobody is. Nobody involved in this film is stepping outside of their comfort zone. Everyone is within their clearly assigned place, which I find really odd given the topic of the film. <laughs> it's, it's borderline ironic given the film is about women trying to assign themselves a new place. What you've got is a film about people, in, you know, in, yeah. with everyone involved in their assigned spaces. Yet, everyone in those spaces I think is terrific. Have you seen this one yet? I've not, no. I know you said Cassie was going to see Cassie's it Cassie's seen it today, so she'll report back. I'll probably check it out this week. Well, the funny thing about this one is this actually opened on Monday, mm. of all times. I, was was it, it a specific... On a Monday? I don't know. Was it some sort of historical day? I, I, I have to profess Maybe, my yeah. ignorance here. I'm... There's ignorance. You're equally ignorant. Yeah, equally. There is a first time for everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is, what this does is this plays sort of the bystander to history angle with with uh, Maud Watts. Uh, rather than, like I say, rather than the suffragette, it plays more on the a suffragette angle. Everybody involved is terrific performance-wise. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is kind of weirdly endearing, actually, as more or less the antagonist of the piece. He's mm. the, uh, the copper trying to catch her and bring down the suffragette movement. Um... Cleverly, in terms of the writing, what they've done quite well is they've balanced the need for the plot with the actual characters very well. For for a film of this sort, for this historical, politically motivated biopic, they have paid attention to character, and that's that's quite impressive to see actually because we're so we're so used to. I give you, for instance, uh, Lincoln, which we were talking about earlier. We were, yeah, we were which is pretty it. much all plot, very little in the way of sort of character, other than Daniel Day-Lewis himself. Other than Lincoln, mate, his son and his yeah. crazy wife. His crazy wife. You think, you think there's... But then you've got characters like James Prado. Yeah. Oh, he's but just there with a just there. haircut. Yeah. There, he's got his tash. He's, he's got the tash. He's got the tash. Um, so there is a, a very, uh, a finely struck balance between character and plot, which actually does work quite well. And hats off to Morgan for doing it. Um, I will say as well, I quite like the way that they have written Emmeline Pankhurst into the film. She is mm. set up as this sort of mythical hero, a sort of Robin Hood-like figure. And then, sort of about halfway through the film, Meryl Streep turns she up. She is, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and you actually, with the casting off Streep, they have perfectly fine-tuned it to find someone who has the gravitas that you would imagine Pankhurst had to have had. Mm. And it works very, very well. It's almost note-perfect, in fact. Um, it uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It ties in around the two-hour mark. Um, it's an interesting story. It's engaging. It's moving. It's, at times, actually quite powerful. Um, it does have that uh, that brilliantly quintessential foggy London of the time. <laughs> They've got that visual trope down pat. But what I really like, actually, is I like the uh, the cinematography of it. I've got his name written down. Uh, Edouard Grau. Okay. What um, else has uh, Edouard Grau done? Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Now, I'm going to tell you this in a moment when I tell you that I really like Edouard Grau's cinematography because he has shot London in a way that makes it seem labyrinthine and quite claustrophobic. And as the plot moves on, and Maud is more and more oppressed by the paranoia and the mm. sort and the oppression coming around in, her, yeah. it feels like everything's coming on, coming in around her. You ask me what Edouard Grau shot before this? Buried, starring Ryan Reynolds. Well, that'll, Go that'll make sense, doesn't it? <laughs> it does now. So hats off. I really like. I really like the film. Um, it is chock full of what you've got can only be described as 
BAFTA friendly performances. Yeah, nominations all around. Oh, oh god, Even yeah. Even for it Meryl is. for sixty seconds. Meryl will get that nomination for her sixty seconds because she ain't getting it for the Flash for Ricky and the Flash. No. That ain't happening. Uh, but this this one will be her her nomination for for the year. Um, I think it's a bit of a winner, and I think it stands quite proudly as a sort of solid, moving feminist drama. But that's how it works. Shall we lighten the tone a bit? Let's do it. I think we've got some film news. We have got some film news. I'll give you two things, and they relate to the same sort of vague... They they are tenuously linked. So, first of all, John Carpenter. Have you heard about his week? No, please inform me. He He had a great week. John Carpenter, it turns out, and I never knew this, took Luke Besson to court a few years back. And sued him for plagiarism. I didn't know about this. Do you know why? Because a, l- yeah. a little film called Lockout. Which starring Guy Pearce. Starring yeah. Guy Pearce. And it has a very familiar plot. It mm. has the plot of pretty much both Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Yeah. And he's sued him for plagiarism. And a judge has now ruled in favour of John Carpenter because they are eerily similar. So. He's an infinitely better filmmaker as well, so he's probably just yeah. a fan of John Carpenter's. So. Yeah, it's quite possible. Yeah. But this news coincides with the news that over at Fox, they are seeking to use their Escape from New York remake slash reboot. They've had in development for two, three years. years. Yeah. Well, they are going to be using that to launch a new franchise that they want to stand alongside the rebooted Planet of the Apes series. And to this end, they have hired none other than Neil Cross. To write the script, Neil Cross, who wrote Lu- who created Luther, yeah, and wrote Pacific Rim. Yeah. So you think, hang on, so the writer of Pacific Rim is going to do Snake Plissken? I'll oh, get Idris to do that. I don't want Idris as that, James Bond. Get him as a. That's it. I want Idris Elba as Black Snake. I I do. <laughs> Black Snake, really? So, does that mean if he's ever hurt, we can say Black Snake moan? Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> get, get Sam Jackson to be his dad as well. Oh, my Amazing. God. This one sells itself. Doesn't it? But if you're going to race Ben the lead, I say you get the Isaac Hayes thing played by... Uh, Isaac Hayes character played by John Goodman. And let's yeah. call it a day. Let's call it a day. Don't. What was his name? Big Daddy? Big Daddy, yeah, yeah. Big Daddy. With, with all the chains and with stuff. With the chains. Yeah. Played by John Goodman. That's the dream. Come on, Neil. Make it happen. <laughs> Right, Case, it's it's time. You've been looking forward to this all week. <laughs> all week. Well, hang on. When did you see? When did you see? Pan? I saw it. Because I sent I saw you it a couple of Mondays ago. A couple of Mondays ago. I sent you to a, a talker screening. I yeah, sent Cal- for my voice. Yeah, I sent Calvin to uh, the actual press uh, to our actual multimedia screening. Yeah. Because he did the press conference, mm. and then we've gotten to yesterday, and I'm the only guy who hadn't seen it. I had to go to the public yeah, screening. I saw it on general release. I saw it on general release. So three of us have now seen this film. Mm. Not one of us likes it, and it seems we're not in the minority. No. <laughs> so Pan, which is Joe Wright's. Reimagined origin story for Peter Pan and Captain Hook, although weirdly it's just called Pan. So, okay, what this to, to boil this one down, Peter Pan. Sorry, he's not given a surname, is he? He's just called he's, Peter. He's just Peter. Yeah. So Peter, but he has a necklace with a set of Pan pipes on so, them. Yeah. Yeah. Do do the maths. <laughs> yeah, do the math on that one. Is an orphan in in World War Two, London, who he and his his fellow orphans are abducted by space pirates. Uh, led by Blackbeard, played by uh, Hugh Jackman, who really isn't a movie star, as this movie proves. 
and uh, forced to work in the mines of Neverland to mine the rare element Pixium, which it turns out is the purified form of Pixie Dust, the raw form of what will become Pixie Dust, and will actually grant the user uh, a user eternal life yeah. should he grind it up and inhale it in a way that looks not dissimilar to crystal meth through a gas mask. Yeah. Right. While in the mines, Peter naturally decides to try and escape and teams up with a fellow prisoner. Wouldn't you know it? It's James Hook. I think he might be uh, might be on the way to becoming someone. What do you mm. think? Played by Garrett Headland, and uh, he uh, Hook and Pan. Uh, sorry, Pan Peter. Peter. He's not Pan. Hook and he's not Pan. We're gonna get no. Hook and not Peter. Yet. Along with Smeagol, I think his name is. Yeah. Smeagol. No one's actually guessing who he becomes. Yeah, no, no one's yeah. guessing who he becomes. This is starting to sound like a Star Wars prequel, okay, isn't it? Yeah. When we keep saying who he becomes. Mm. Right. Escape the minds only to discover that, wouldn't you know it, Peter has a destiny. It turns out that the natives of Neverland have an ancient prophecy in which a young boy, born of a human woman and a fairy prince, will appear, identified by a mark of jewellery shaped like a pan, and he will possess the ability to fly and the tenacity to bring down Blackbeard. D do you think there might be a very <laughs> slight chance that this young boy with the piece of jewellery that looks like a pan might be the same one that's prophesied? There's a possibility, isn't there? It's possible. Yeah. Also, there are never birds. Here's a clip. These things they expect me to do. I can't do them, Hook. I've tried. Hey, I can't do stop. the things or I can't hey. be the one. Listen. Oh, what the bloody hell am I? You can go feeling sorry for yourself all you want, kid. But knowing where you're from, that's half of knowing who you are. That's more than most of us here will ever know. At least you know where you come from. Born to a warrior, heir to a prince. Does that mean you're the one? I don't know. I don't know if there is a one. But I do know that if you aren't the guy And you are just you. Maybe that's enough. First and foremost, with Pan. Um, First of all, go on. Don't get me started on those bloody Neverbirds. <laughs> oh, they were just are they? vile. What are they? Not not in bad design. Just the 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 CGI is just. Ugh. Doesn't it look like the kind of skin? Cool. It's, it's the kind of thing that would you, you can. I'm kind of glad Jim Henson's dead because if he'd lived to see that, yeah, God help us. <laughs> like Jim Henson would have burnt the building down if he yeah. if he'd ever seen this. Mm. Uh, Stan Winston spinning in his grave, and yeah, just no. What 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 is this? First of all, right, the film is boring. The film is incredibly boring. The film is over long, and yeah. it's not a particularly long film, isn't it? About two hours. It's it's just under two. Just under two. Feels like it's about three hours long. Absolutely. It's dull because it seems to have no direction whatsoever. It's it's always a case of it. It's a quest movie. It becomes a quest movie in in the form of. Uh, do you remember uh, Maze Runner Scorch Trials, where they kept shifting the goalposts every twenty minutes? Yeah. And you're thinking, no, this doesn't make any sense. This is very much the same. So, okay, so now we have to escape the mine. Okay, so now we have to escape Neverland. Now, okay, now we have to find the tribe. Okay, now we have to find the find the fairy kingdom. Okay, now we have to. Really, this is basic. It's like a schizophrenic trying to relate a plot to you, and then Ant Man <laughs> goes to the. This happens, and then yeah. he's the chosen one. Exactly, and this yeah. is the problem with it. Ultimately, the film comes down to a really phoned in attempt to devise a revisionist chosen one origin story trademark for peter pan 
And I say revisionist origin story, uh, revisionist chosen one origin story trademark, because it seems to be becoming the go-to thing now. I mean, Spider-Man couldn't pull it off. Superman couldn't pull it off. What in the hell made anyone think Peter, Peter Pan, Pan could pull it yeah. off? Peter Pan? Really? Peter Pan? I mean, I can just about swallow the idea of, you know, Superman, fine, he has the, the codex, you know, he has the genetic code of every person alive on Krypton embedded within his DNA. You think, okay, fine, you know what, he's nearly going to live with that crap. Mm. Um, but n no, I mean, it doesn't make any sense in this context. But uh, anyway, so what you've got then is a film which is boring, it's plodding, it's uninteresting, and it constantly contradicts itself. Mm. Hey, we had a prophecy the Chosen One's going to turn up and he'll be identified <laughs> by this piece of jewellery. Hey, However, cool! <laughs> hey, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm a young, young boy wearing this piece of jewellery. However, as you say, yeah. we need you prove to prove. It. Yeah, prove, prove it. it. Prove it. Well, you just, go fly. Yeah, it's like you go, just, go jump off a cliff. You just said. That's another <laughs> thing. How that kid's not dying of internal bleeding two-thirds yeah. of the way through that film is beyond me because he falls from a lot of cliffs. I don't like it how Peter is just... When, when he gets taken to Neverland by the bungee jumping pirates, yes, the, he's the, just yeah. like he's cool with it. Absolutely, like, ninja pirates. He yeah. is strangely okay with like, it. Nibsy! Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's sad about Nibsy for like what two seconds because he's Oliver Twist with a friend named Nibsy. Of course, Nibsy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah gets taken to space. Uh, yeah, he's, he's floating around. He's abducted by space pirates. Yeah, meets Han Solo. Uh, meets meets uh, you know Indiana, Indiana Solo. Solo yeah, Indiana course, Solo. Yeah. And because that's it, Garrett Hedlund is torpedoing his auditions for both young Han Solo and young Indiana Jones with this yeah, he's, movie. He's, he's not going to get that audition. So Never. He? Never he, he's get not it. getting either. No. Never. Chris Pratt. Congratulations, you are safe. I, I, I really, really do like Garrett Hedlund. <laughs> I do. I <laughs> want Garrett Hedlund to be a movie star. I want him to have his own franchise. I do. I want Garrett Hedlund to be a movie star, though. I don't want him to be Taylor Kitsch. I don't want him to be lumped into... Well, after this film, I don't want him to be Hugh Jackman. <laughs> I really don't. So... Tell us your thoughts on Hugh Jackman's performance. Hugh Jackman's Blackbeard. Okay, yeah. Hugh Jackman is. I'm doing extravagant. I'm doing Baz Luhrmann. He's Absolutely, he's in yeah. a Baz Luhrmann film. That yeah. that that's his role. He's in a Baz Luhrmann film. But the problem is that because the character is so thinly devised, he's just a guy who wants to look young. He's thinking, yeah, but Guy Pearce did better than this in about two minutes of screen time in Prometheus. You have a whole movie, and. I, I'm sorry, but if I can say that Prometheus did something better, you have failed this city. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have failed. If Prometheus has done anything better than anyone, you have failed. And that's the problem. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's just a really... It, border, it borders on quite predatory a performance at times. But it also... The, the, there is that, that, that scene where he talks to Peter for the first time after he sees Peter kind of... Like, there is hover. something yeah. weirdly, inappropriately seductive about it. Mm. But you think... But, but you can't quite get past the notion that, wow, you have no big screen charisma, Hugh. Wow. How did we never notice See, that? I don't think that I necessarily agree with that. Is I just it... think it's a really terribly written character. I think that's... My, but, but a great actor would bring it regardless. Mm. And you sit there and you look at it and you think, wow, maybe it's because we get a Wolverine performance out of you every two years now that we've stopped noticing. He can do it in his sleep as well. He, he can, can do, do that Wolverine shtick. Yeah. He's got it down pat. Absolutely. This, not not so much. Um, right, so Joe Wright's direction is... Yeah, let's talk about Joe Wright. Great when it's in London. <laughs> when it gets to Neverland, which is about ten minutes into the film, and by the way, the transition between London and Neverland, which involves World War Two dogfighting, that is the visual highlight of the whole film. If you're going to see the film for yeah. any reason, see it for that. Although I'm going to point out that he nicked one of his shots from Pearl Harbor. 
That shot of the oh, bomb. Oh, don't you go defending no, no. Harbour again. <laughs> that shot of the, from the missile's point of view, the back end of the missile. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Like, lifted directly from Pearl Harbour. How dare you, Joe Wright? How dare you? So, this is a Poo film. to you with knobs on, sir. <laughs> so, this is a film where it takes something directly from universally, apart from yourself, critically panned film Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor and is the first something... Blu-ray I ever bought, and I did that for I did that to prove a point. And it does something worse than Prometheus. Yes. Just yeah. yeah, this ain't great. So then you've got Rooney Mara, who, believe me, the fact that they've race bent that character is not the worst thing about the film. Uh, although strangely, no one seems to have mentioned the fact that she's got an Irish accent yeah, throughout. Good Speaking of accents, let's talk about Levi Miller as well, who can leap from Mockney to Estuary in the space of a single monologue. And then you've got, of course, Nipsey! You've got that. Um, <laughs> Nipsey! Nipsey! <laughs> That is the defining thing of that it film. It is, yeah, that's, that's my big <laughs> takeaway. From it film. really is. And then you've got Garrett Headland. Uh, right, yeah, Carl uh, Urban. So, yeah, Carl Urban, yeah, basically, yeah, he's doing Carl Urban's Star Trek voice. Hmm. The only thing I got left is my bones. <laughs> what? Why? No. Come on, kid. If you want to win the Kentucky Derby, you don't stable your best horse. What? But also, I mean, we had this discussion. Um, uh, we, I think it's implied that Hook is an orphan. Who, he's an orphan like Peter. He's been in the mines so long that he's now an adult man. Yeah. At some point, he's acquired an Indiana Jones costume. Exactly. Now dresses like Indiana Jones. Now dresses like Indiana Jones. Yeah. Has got this weird Carl Urban space voice. And strangely enough, has knowledge that... And I had this with Guardians of the Galaxy as well, to an extent, to be fair. Which is, if you've been away from your home since being a child how do you know certain things how did star lord know who jackson pollock was if he was nine years old when he was taken i've never quite gotten around that one i think in terms of peter quill i think it's just implied that he is quite like a learned kid as far as Maybe culture he just goes there's a lot of textbooks in his backpack yeah. I, just, I just put it down to that this, this is a kid whose who's mum was so cool that she gave him that mixtape so. this, this is very true yeah. I mean, we shouldn't talk about Guardians of the Galaxy too much but I, I do agree because that's with, a great film I do is... agree with Brad Florence's tweet on the subject which was poor little Peter Quill floating around space uh, with, uh, with uh, completely ignorant knowledge of the young happy black Michael Jackson uh, it, it's true. You think about it like that. <laughs> There's a moment in Infinity War that's got to happen. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to this, Garrett Headland, you suck. You really suck. So let's say Joe Wright's direction, great in London, terrible when it's Neverland. It just it looks like it, bizarrely, it looks like Journey to the Mysterious Island. Mm. And I couldn't escape this feeling. I kept expecting Louise Guzman to turn up. <laughs> And but don't get me wrong, the I film would have been great if the leader of the Lost Boys, sorry, sorry, the natives, had been Louise Guzman because they've not kept the name Lost Boys. Peter is a Lost Boy. That yeah. is the only acknowledgement you get. And by the way, there are a lot of lines from the history of Peter Pan dropped into this for no reason whatsoever. A lot of lines from Hook. A lot of lines from Hook. Bad form. Uh, dying will be the greatest adventure. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then, of course, there is the screenplay by Jason Fox, um, and that is his actual name, and it's spelt. It is spelt F U C H S. I swear to God, that is his name. He is also the writer of the upcoming Wonder Woman movie. So were, were no surnames given during writing this No one. surname. The only time he gave his surname, or gave any one of his surnames, during the writing of this film was when he put written by on the front page. That is the only time he gave his surname in this film. Okay? Seriously. <laughs> Uh, and that is your gag for the week. Yeah, it's done. Uh, do not see this at all. It is. It, it, it's enough now with these uh, revisionist chosen one mm. origin story trademarked. Um, it's enough. Come on, it's boring now. I mean, 
we, we can wrap this up by saying enough, the film is terrible, do not see it. Terrible CGI as well, the 3D does not help that regard either. Um, but we should wrap this up with a bit of film news that Die Hard is getting a revision chosen, yeah, a revisionist chosen one origin story trademark. Mm. Set in set in the seventies and showing us how John McClane became John McClane and directed by Len Wiseman and directed again. by Len Wiseman because apparently no one learnt the last time, but Bruce Willis will be involved. That's the good of news. Of course he will. Yeah. God help us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm getting to the stage where I'm starting to wish the the franchise would actually die easily. Yeah. Rather, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I too. Okay, so I would rather see a moonlighting movie. Than, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> box office top ten time. Yeah. So shall we begin? Number ten. Inside Out. Which you're a huge fan of. Uh, I, yeah. I, I like it very much. I've, I've seen not, it three times. You've seen it three times. I've, I've seen it the once. Just the once. I've seen it the once as well. I've seen it once in 2D as well. Which Just in 2D? Uh, just in 2D, not 3D. But you're going to be watching it this evening, I believe. I be, yes, I'll be watching it in 3D. In 3D. So, no, it's it's great. It's definitely like in the top three. Uh, like your Pixar films. films. Yeah, big time. Up there up, 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 uh, with uh, Wally. Yeah. Up and Wally? Yeah, up and wally for me. Yeah, well, okay, that's an interesting one. Actually, yeah, yeah I'd kind of go with that. I love The Incredibles, though. Yeah, oh man, it's difficult to choose. It is. Number nine. A regression with Ethan Hawke. Oh dear God, no. And I see we, is the, oh, is it, this is one is of the films bad? that we didn't get to cover last week. Oh, right, this, so set it up. Okay, this is essentially, it wants to be The Wicker Man with a, psych, a sort of psychology angle, with a sort of psycho cult angle added in. Uh, which is a newfangled sort of psychological take on the cult idea of the Wicker Man. Uh, it doesn't quite work. It plays like a TV movie. Ethan Hawke and Emma Watson—they're trying their best, damn it. But uh, the script is just not there. At best, it's an expanded Criminal Minds episode, and that's happening an awful lot this year now, where we're just taking a TV procedural and blowing it up yeah, to the big make screen. A feature. And no, because it's just not interesting. It's not inherently theatrical. Uh, Alejandro Menabar, this is sort of his return, meant to be his sort of return. It's not in any way. I mean, the guy who directed the others, from what I can gather, died a long, long time ago. And all we've had since is The Sea Inside, which is what Javier Bardem does yeah. euthanasia, and Agora, in which Rachel Weiss goes Roman. And you know what? None of these are really adding up. And I could you, oh, please, Alejandro, go back and do a ghost story again, because apparently. That was where your forte lie. Number eight. Maze Runner, The Scorch Trials, Catching Fire, Breaking Dawn, Part One, <laughs> Deathly Hallows. Part One, The Deathly Hallows in 3D. Yeah. When IMAX 3D is a case of uh, yeah. mocking Jay will be, uh, which is a mess of a film. It's a plodding, you know, it's a plodding adventure novel for yeah. tweens. And the more you think back at it, it's like, you know, it's it's bits laboriously taken from other franchises. To the extent that you actually can't differentiate it from other franchises. I I, I can't yeah. pick. You could show me a still from Divergent and this, and I wouldn't be able to tell you which you film it was. You'd be like, there's probably like some kind of faction going on. There's, there's factions, yeah. I think, and Kate Winslet's in there's one. factions or districts, and Patricia Clarkson's in another. Yeah, Kate and... Winslet's got one, Patricia Clarkson's got the other, and the other one's Jennifer Lawrence and Donald Sutherland. And Julianne Moore, yeah. And, and Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore? Is that, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Julianne yeah. Moore, yeah. Have you noticed they've all got this thing? They have to have a middle-aged woman as the sort Always, of yeah. antagonist, don't they? As one of the mm. antagonists. Because from what I can gather, I think Julianne Moore is more of an antagonist in the final, I think. Well, we from, don't know, do we? I, I don't know. Unless I, you've read the book. I, I, I mean, I have people who've read the books and tell me these yeah. things. I don't know what happens to her character. I, I know that she, she's more a prominent antagonist in, in the final one. But uh, anyway, so I can't tell it apart. I don't think it's particularly interesting. Even its zombies feel strangely lifted from one of uh, Stephen Summers' mummy movies. <laughs> but uh, they really, they remind me of the mummy. <laughs> but no, the film is garbage. Don't see it. 
don't don't tune in in two years either in a, in a year's time either for Pond Skimmer Part One or whatever it's going to be called. <laughs> Number seven, the Scottish film. The Scottish. Have the, you seen the Scottish film? I've still not, not you. seen the Scot, and I've been so excited to watch the Scottish film as well. There's people in I love. There's Dim Fuelless. There's Paddy Considine. There's Banquo. Um, the, there's, I have recently discovered that I'm not, I'm not a big fan of. There's, there's a lot of critics I don't read um, because, for one thing, I know them, and <laughs> it's kind of pointless when you get their opinion yeah. in the room. But uh, one who I don't know particularly well, and I have recently discovered the work of Camilla Long from the Sunday Times, and I've become quite a fan of hers. Yeah. And uh, she 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 takes uh, she she's very individual. She takes her own position on films. But she so adequately explains her position that you think, okay, fair enough. It's not like one of those people who turns up, it's crap. And you think, yeah. okay, but why? She okay, explains her choice. She will explain her choice. And she she had issues with Macbeth, and she did explain it as being sub Game of Thrones, which I think <laughs> actually, yeah, I could kind of see that it is Macbeth for the Game of Thrones generation. I think because we had the discussion, didn't we? We we would we, we reviewed it together, didn't we? The Scottish the Scottish. We were film. talking about it. Yeah. Um, I have said it twice, haven't I? Now, yeah. <laughs> but um, bad luck on your house. Bad luck on my house. But uh, plague on both your houses. <laughs> that see that. Wrong that's play, a Shakespeare. Play. I know, but that's a Shakespeare one I can watch over and over again. That Othello. Anyway, um, Othello is my favourite. Can't explain why. See, I'm different because this is my favourite Shakespeare. Funnily enough, John Dickinson said something similar. Did he? But he did point out that that's because it is Shakespeare's horror play. Yeah, of course. Is, yeah. Okay, it kind of is. Yeah, I get that. It's got three witches. The horror imagery is present in there. The German music video influence is present in there. <laughs> Believe me. Fassbender does Ramstein. It does look like Michael Fassbender is in a Ramstein video. Amazing. And you think, How yes. Can I love that. No, I do love that. I think Justin Kurzel's direction is fantastic. I do think the performances are also fantastic. Everything about the film is fantastic. However, you and I said this when we reviewed it. If you don't like Shakespeare to begin with, the fancy wrapping paper on this is not going to make you like the present beneath any more. You, you, you get what I mean? Yeah. If your grandmother, if your saying. grandmother buys you a sweater for Christmas that you didn't like last year, but she puts it in new wrapping paper this year, you still ain't gonna like it. Depends what the sweater is, or what wrapping paper. <laughs> Number six. Everest in, I pop in IMAX 3D. Ice coming at your face. Ice coming at your face. Yeah, that should have been the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a terrible one, wouldn't it? <laughs> Nine men went up a mountain. Now ice, ice will ice. come at your face. <laughs> That's just terrible. Ice to see you. Just, oh. just any Mister Freeze. Pun. Yeah, what killed the dinosaurs? The ice, ice age. age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's just. That is just terrible. Mm. So, have you seen Everest yet? Uh, no, I've, I've been very behind recently. Ah, fair enough. Um, I'm no, catching up slowly. Everest was it was one of those. It was it was good. It wasn't great though, and I think mm. a big part of it for me was the fact. I mean, for one thing, it's a two-hour film that took an hour and ten minutes to get to the inciting incident. Yeah, you don't see the money shot until two thirds in. That's what. Yes, I that is, and that's a real waste, particularly when you're marketing it on that money shot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a very big fan of saying if you've got a movie called Batman Begins. Uh, then you know <laughs> Batman has to begin at some, point. some point and yeah. I'll give you an hour and ten minutes I'll, I'll give you an hour because Liam Neeson has to train him to be a ninja that's fine you know we have to kill mum and dad and have him be a ninja that's fine <laughs> you can take an hour with that also it's a Christopher Nolan movie so we're lucky it happened within a weekend if we're honest so <laughs> when you've got Everest and it's, it's true Nolan will go on for weeks if you let him but, yeah uh, no, definitely <laughs> look at Interstellar wow 
I mean, Martian did a lot less. In I don't it. know if our film has even finished yet. Still, it's still Martian did a lot more in a lot less time. Did you notice that? Oh yeah. But we'll talk a bit. We will about, talk about that we'll later talk about, on the top ten. We will. Um, I like Everest. I just wish it was slightly more vertical limit and a bit less perfect storm. Number five. The intern with uh, Bob De Niro and Anne Hathaway. I really want to see the version of this that would have been Michael Caine and Tina Fey. That would have been. Was that set up? Was that, that... This is what it originally came from. Originally, it was Michael Caine and Tina Fey. That was the original version oh, of the intern. We have been robbed. We have been robbed. Yeah. Can you imagine that film? Because I, I, I love Bobby De Niro. I, but, I yeah. do, and this is the most awake he's been on screen in years. I'm well, not, that's good, I'm yeah. not exaggerating. And he's a lot of fun, in it? But he is doing that shtick that he has gotten down pat over the last few years, which is, I will be the straight man to all of the wackiness around me. It's funny you should say that. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I rewatched recently, which I didn't expect to like when I saw it at the cinema. Last Vegas. Last Vegas. I enjoyed it. I don't know why. I don't know why. I, enjoy... I think it's because of Kevin Kline more than anything. Oh no, I think it's because I like the interplay between Robert De Niro and Michael Douglas, and I'm amazed that we Tune haven't had well. that. I'm amazed we haven't had that before, actually, because mm. it's a good pairing. Yeah, I feel that's like an '80s movie we were robbed of. It is. Yeah. It's very much an '80s movie. We were we were denied strangely. Yeah. By the way, I can't remember who was it played Morgan Freeman's son in that movie. I don't. Oh God. Is one Michael was... Ely? I want to say Michael Ely. Is it? He's like an overprotective. Yeah. yeah. Think it's Michael Ailey. Never mind. So, uh, no, the internet, I did think it was funny. I did think it was moving. I think it was a little bit more by the numbers and a little bit more predictable than I would have liked. But and, and it, but that's, that's fine, but the film makes that worse by having glimmers of the potential for so much more. Mm. And there are just, there are moments in which you think, oh, wow, that would have been such an interesting direction to go in for five minutes to, to make a point on that. But you've just hinted at it and then let it, and cast it aside mm. and that's sad for me given the, the calibre of the people involved I yeah. really like De Niro I really like Anne Hathaway Nancy Myers I was going to say you I, like I, Nancy I, I like Nancy Myers um, and then you've got you know a, a great supporting cast of sort of up and coming comedians Absolutely, yeah. and you think, Adam Devine yeah, Adam Devine, I would have loved to. Adam Devine's one of the best things in Modern Family now yeah how, oh my how good do you have to be to be one of the best things in Modern, modern family. family I mean god that show has Ty Burrell Number four. Two Tom Hardys for the price of one. Legend is really yeah. hanging in. How long is it? Is it five weeks it's been out? Yeah, it was like the start of September when that film was released. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, you know what? It, it, it is enjoyable, but it is cartoonish. It, it really wants to be a Scorsese that movie. Voiceover. <laughs> London in the 1960s. Yeah. Everybody knew the craze was. And you're like, Jesus Christ, it's, it's worse yeah. than when Gemma Arton tried to do that EastEnders voice in Byzantium. <laughs> Oh yeah. When when uh, Gemma Arton tried to do the voice of Pat Butcher for a Neil Jordan vampire movie, you're like, who thought this one up? This is the only thing worse, and it's made even worse by uh, what's her name? Uh, Emily. Emily Browning. Emily Browning, who I do like, who I think is perfectly fine, but in the actual film itself, doesn't use that accent. She's perfectly perfectly decent, perfectly enjoyable in the film. It's just the voiceover, which has clearly been done some time after. Yeah. It's terrible. She's forgotten the voice she was using in the film. <laughs> Like, n- no, or that's... maybe it's meant to be her character as like an older Pat Butcher style. Well, I think for yeah. obvious reasons that's not the case, and uh... yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you just take a beat there, kids. Yeah, just <laughs> I've not seen it. <laughs> oh right, well history, man. Yeah, you've seen the Kemps. Number three. Let's talk about the walk. Oh, the walk. Sorry, I thought we were on to Sakari. Let's now the walk. Um, 
Well, the scene with the walk, you see, is it is the <laughs> Frenchiest French film that has ever been made by a non-French person. And that you have <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the Frenchiest Frenchman who has ever lived. Philippe Now, that's my favourite thing as well. His name is Philippe Petit, which it's technically great, makes him Little Phil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's directly translated. It's French for Little Phil. It's French for Little Phil. I mean, come on. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Little Phil. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's great. So what you've got is, you've got a film... Um, that begins with this circus biopic, effectively. Mm. Then becomes a heist movie, then becomes a tension-based spectacle story. And that's perfectly fine. However, those first two acts constantly pound on you to go with the whimsical lightheartedness of everything going on. And you think, okay, that's fine. I will go. I'm, mm. I'm quite content to go with your lightheartedness. Why not? If you want to go with that, that is like, it's all on yeah, you. I'm there. You you deliver the lightheartedness, I will happily go along with it. <laughs> Fine. You deliver it, I will sign for it. That is how the package deal works. Right. <laughs> that, is, that is how our career exchange will play out. <laughs> However, when you then get to your third act and you're asking me to be on the edge of my seat, you have to... You, you, you kind of can't have that if you've asked me to not really invest in the characters. You've just asked me to be amused by them. Doesn't really work like because of how light and fluffy you have made the first two acts, you cannot then have suspense because then you're creating something new. You're creating the concept of fluffy suspense. You can't have fluffy suspense, it's ridiculous. Now, I want to point out that Robert Zemeckis has done exceptional work with the 3D and his visuals in this. However, uh, the Foot Lambert's issue, the light loss is yeah, a bit this. much. Now, I saw this in standard 3D, not IMAX 3D, not laser. Not laser, we'll talk about that later. However, because I'm seeing it in 3D, it is so dark that even in daylight scenes, you are genuinely squinting. During marketing, you may have noticed uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's ridiculous bright blue contact lenses. Mm. During the actual film, you can't see them for a second because the really? film is that dark. It, there's no visible indication. It looks almost like a black and white film when it's in 3D. Which is kind of funny, because I think the early scenes actually are in black and white. <laughs> you don't actually notice the transition unless you're peering over the top of your glasses. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Gordon let's call him by his, his now, his nom de plume his now. His francophile name. His francophile name. His performance as little Phil is, I can see why he's done it, but I think it's far cartoony than he thinks it is. And this is far, far from a, from a, from what you would describe as a good Zemeckis film. Number two. A brand new entry, Sicario. I adore this film. I knew you were going to. I, I adore <laughs> it. I knew it. Have you you've not seen this, I tell you. No. No. Still on, right. still on my list. It's, okay. it's probably it's like number one on my list. Okay. Here's what you do. <clears throat> Wear loose clothing. Have a, have a few shots. Okay. Walk into a cinema screen, perch yourself on the edge of your seat and stay there. For two hours. This is not fluffy suspense. This people. is not fluffy suspense. This is white knuckle, brow wiping suspense. That's that's what this is. This is Benicio del Toro is going to kill you. Suspense. This is this is, there, is a, there is a reason this isn't in IMAX 3D because the film is immersive enough mm. that you don't want to be immersed to the point that you genuinely think Benicio del Toro may appear behind you and garrote you. That's what kind of film this is. Everybody involved in it is superb. Josh Brolin, Emily Blunt, who owns this film, mm. and then Benicio Del Toro, who then steals the film from her. You've got Roger Deakins on cinematography, and boy, does he do a good job. Denise Villeneuve? Denise yeah. Villeneuve. They've got such a great working they've got, team now. They are the best director-cinematographer combo I have seen since Nolan and Wally Fister. Mm. 
back in the inception sort of days. Yeah, absolutely. Before Wally Fister decided, you know I'm what? I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to go and make Lawnmower Man again. Uh, before he decided <laughs> that, yeah. Anyway, because that's what Wally Fister did. Let us never forget, he went and remade Lawnmower Man. Yeah. He should never be allowed to forget that. <clears throat> so now you've got Denis Villeneuve and Roger Deakins, who, of course, I believe you've told me are doing uh, Blade Runner 2 together. They are, yeah. Good. Bring it on. Yeah, bring it on. I want them to do a sci-fi film. I want them to do a 3D IMAX sci-fi film. Go and do it. I don't, even, I don't even care if House of Pawns on it. Don't it's care. Just, don't care at all. is a part. But, uh, no, Sakari, though, I, I genuinely love it. Edge of your seat, gritty cartel thriller. It belongs on the DVD shelf next to Heat. That's how good okay. a crime thriller it is. Number one. The Martian. It's a non-mover. This is love an it. air puncher of a film, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. <sighs> so you, how long has it been since you saw this film? Uh, I saw it on the day of release, actually. I saw it on like, Wednesday. I saw it on the Monday night of that week, so I yeah. saw it two days before release, and then I saw it two days after release, right. and uh, I I want to go and see it again, yeah. that's how much I love this film. The fact that we didn't get this in IMAX and we got The Walk instead is short is nothing short of a cinematic crime. Um, wow, what a film. Mm. It is fun, it is engaging, it is interesting, it is suspenseful. I mean, there's nothing fluffy about this suspense. No, not at all. This is more suck the air out of the room and suffocate. You never think that a potato would leave you so emotional. It is very true. You'll never look at a potato the same way. Every time I see a spud, I just think 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 about Mark. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, Watney. But no, what a cast. I mean, Ridley Scott's on form. First time in a long, long time. Yeah. You've got Drew Goddard's screenplay. I didn't realise Drew Goddard was originally supposed to be directing it. Oh, really? Yes. He turned down directing it after having already done the screenplay. Ridley Scott took over. And... Magic Bing. happened, yeah. Boom, shake the room. Well, you go to the Martian. And uh, you've got to say, you've got great performances from the likes of Matt Damon, who's... Do you know what? He's a movie star. Sorry, Hugh Jackman, but Matt Damon is a better, is, is a, a better example of a movie star. So. Because he can do other things. Matt Damon had a franchise character. He played it played it out, and then moved on. He's going back to it now, so that kind of undermines <laughs> yeah, my point. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't... Kind of undermines <laughs> my point a little bit, but you know what? Screw it. And then you've got what, Jessica Chastain, she was a legend for... Yeah. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Daniels, Daniels like, Sean Bean, Sean Bean, you're bloody coward. <laughs> Sean Bean as Mitch Henderson. <laughs> Great name. <laughs> you're bloody coward. I love that. <laughs> uh, Donald Glover playing Arbed instead yeah, so, of so Troy. Yeah. Communities Troy plays Communities Arbed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what else have we got? They've got Michael Pena in there, of course. Oh yeah. Axel Henney, Sebastian Stan, Stan uh, Kate Mara because it's a film in 2015. And yeah. uh, but everybody gets something to do, and we all have a fantastic. It is a terrific dream. ensemble, I yeah. think, despite the fact that Matt. It, it is an all by myself film for Matt Damon, yeah. and it's terrific. It kind of, it, it kind of reminds you the difference between, for example, this and Castaway. Given that Castaway yeah. didn't focus on back in the real world, didn't have a back in the real no. world section, this does. And you think, actually, yeah, it's amazing how much pacier that makes the film. And you know, oh, it's kind of an interesting. There's a university essay in that. You know, there is someone's doing a dissertation Absolutely. on that. Absolutely, yeah. Some more film news then, I think, to take us oh, through yeah, Crimson let's, Peak. Let's treat ourselves. So what else have we got then? Oh, oh, there was this rumour the other day, I don't know if you caught this. There was a rumour that went around for about an hour that Marvel had gotten the rights to the Fantastic yeah, Four back. that was quickly debunked. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Marvel it, like, no. Yeah, so we'll just clarify that. No, that is not true. That never happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Richard Linklater. Yeah, the, the Rosie Project. The Rosie Project, which has been developed over at TriStar slash Sony. Um, this is, and I like the concept for this. This is a romantic dramedy about mm. a scientist who develops a theorem to accurately predict your ideal partner, mm. only to then encounter um, his perfect mate, who has none of the qualities his theorem suggests. 
and you know he can either be with the girl he wants or you know he can have his yeah. scientific theorem. Uh, the girl in question was of course going to be uh, Jennifer Lawrence, who was going to be play, playing Rosie. Uh, she quit on Monday, I believe, <laughs> and Richard Linklater quit very shortly after. Yeah. So Sony have lost their star and their director in the space of a couple of days. It's a shame, because I quite like the premise of that. The premise is and good, I, isn't I, it? I do love Richard Linklater. So, um, we've got to talk about your favourite lady, uh, Rebecca Ferguson. She's, yeah, let's uh, talk about do, do you remember, a couple, about a month ago now, we talked about The Snowman? Yeah. This is going to be the Joe Nesbo yeah. novel, starring Joe Nesbo's character, the brilliantly named Harry Hole, yeah. played by, to be, allegedly <laughs> played Fassbender. by Michael Fassbender, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Rebecca Ferguson is now in negotiations to join the cast. So, this one's coming together. It, that is coming together, isn't it? Um, the Rabbids. Do you know the Rabbids? No, I do not know the Rabbids. The popular video game series. I think they're spun out of Rayman. Oh, those horrible white looking. Yeah, oh, white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they are getting a movie. Oh, well, of course they are. They are. Because anything that's small and can be related to like a minion. Then, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Rabbids is going to be a movie and it is going to be written by three of the guys involved with Robot Chicken. Which is a TV. That's interesting. Uh, that is <laughs> yeah. interesting because Robot Chicken is a TV favorite of most people our age. Yeah. Um, yeah, any, any, if you're between like twenty and thirty-five, odds are you watch Robot Chicken at some point. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it's the perfect filler that show, isn't it? Yeah, With it is. eleven-minute runtime. <laughs> so, one last review then before we cut to the break. Should we have a look at Crimson Peak then? Yeah, let's do this. This is uh, Del Toro doing a gothic horror romance. Yes, imagine that. Am yeah. I the only person that thought Guillermo Del Toro is doing a gothic horror romance? What could possibly go wrong? Uh, the answer is yes. Actually, surprisingly, surprisingly, things can actually go wrong. Um, where to begin? Okay, let's start with the plot. Logically, let's start at the beginning. That's always the best place to start. Mia Wasikowska is Edith Cushing. Now, oh yeah, that's the reaction I was waiting for. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of sets yeah. the tone nicely there. She's Edith Cushing. Because apparently just having a gothic haunted house is not enough of a reference to Hammer. You actually have to have a Cushing. You also then have Tom Hiddleston showing up to play Peter Cushing. Yeah. Which is even funnier. Peter Cushing by way of Loki. So, <clears throat> Edith Cushing is a young aspiring writer in the, uh, in the late 19th century. Um, when her father uh, dies under mysterious circumstances, she gets married to a mysterious baronet, as his, as his, title, as his uh, title is, and uh, goes with him to uh, remote rural England to live in his massive palatial home, which it must be uh, said is in somewhat of a state of decay. However, they're not living there alone. They're also going to be living there with his very weird sister, the Baronet being played by Tom Hiddleston, as I mentioned, and the very weird sister being played by Jessica Chastain. Now, no sooner has she arrived at Allerdale Hall, as it's called, and discovered that because it's built on a red clay mine, uh, red clay mine, the house is literally bleeding. You can see the imagery in there, can't you? Cool. Your eyes just widen yeah. when I say, "Yes, the house is literally bleeding." If you walk on a tile, the edges of the it's tile blood. bleed. Cool. No sooner has she arrived, discovered the house is bleeding, she also discovers there's some ghosts about as well. But what do these ghosts want? Mm. Is Edith actually speaking to the undead? Is she actually encountering, you know, uh, deviant spirits of the afterlife, or is she actually just losing her mind? Here's a clip. She knows who I am and she wants me to leave. Nonsense, my dear. You're not going anywhere. You had a bad dream. You were sleepwalking. No. 
I'm afraid I should go mad if I stay. My darling, you're imagining things. Tomorrow, why don't we go out uh, to the post office? I think some fresh air would do you good. No, I have to leave. I have to get away from here. Edith, this is your home now. You have nowhere else to go. When it comes to sort of these kind of, and a filmmaker of the iconic level of Guillermo del Toro, because you can't mistake his films for anyone else's. No. You, you really can't. You see, it's, it's definitely Del Toro. You could show me any film that he'd done, regardless of whether or not I'd seen it, I would know yeah. it was his. And when it comes to filmmakers of that calibre, the only thing worse than them doing um, a bad movie is when they do a decent one. When they do one that's just decent. Just fine. Yeah, because you don't want just fine. You, you kind of want bad or great. You can live with either. And Pacific Rim is one of those two, <laughs> depending on who you are as a person. I think <laughs> yeah. it's great. I yeah. I don't think anyone's looking. I, at I think it has terrible bits, but that kind of adds to its greatness. I it, think it does. Yeah, it really does. Those, those names, those character names, are shocking. Literally. But then again, are brilliant at the same time. Now, <laughs> Stack of Pentecost. Funnily enough, I have to refer back to Pacific Rim fairly often when talking about Crimson Peak because, on the one hand, this Crimson Peak does two Hammer films what Pacific Rim did to Toho. And you think, oh, okay, I can kind of get that. So what you're doing is we're now establishing that you have this formula that Pacific Rim was just the first example of it, mm. and we're now going to see, well, that's great. I wish more filmmakers would do that. Just go and tackle a different genre every time. Fine, go and do it. We'll ignore the fact that prior to Pacific Rim, Del Toro mainly did horror, but we'll ignore that, and we'll just go with Pacific Rim as your phase two. Fine, have that. <laughs> yeah. So... Going down the, the route of the, the Hammer thing, you think, okay, the, the love of Hammer, is it's there on the screen, you can tell. Uh, Tom Hiddleston's u- you know, using his typecasting as Loki quite to his advantage, but it does sort of underserve the film in the one sense, because as he's doing that Loki performance, I've sent it off, I know not where, sort of a performance. <laughs> no, and you're doing a marvellous job so far. I love that was pretty on... That was good, that was far on. You get me drunk enough, I can do a pretty good Loki. Um... <laughs> you kept me with a sore enough Thor, I can do a pretty yeah. good Thor. Um, right. <laughs> uh, because he's doing that sort of Loki esh performance, it underserves the film by removing somewhat of the suspense from that character. You kind of know a lot of the sort of twistier elements that have to come. Mm. And then you get to Jessica. But having said that, Hiddleston does have that gravitas that makes him a character actor like Peter Cushing. Yes, great, okay, that and Del Toro, I can live with that. Fine. If the rest of the movie sucks, at least we had that. Fine. Then you get to Jessica Chastain. And, uh, well, I should, I'm should. i going to preface this by saying that Charlie Hunnam is also in this film. Yeah. He's yes. not been as big a part of the marketing as everyone else. I mean, he's the fourth lead. Okay. So, if you thought that Charlie Hunnam's attempt at an American accent in Pacific Rim was bad, believe me, he has nothing on Jessica Chastain's attempt to do an English accent. Oh, that's a shame. Which <laughs> is kind of odd, since actually in this film, Charlie Hunnam's American accent, the second time around, has actually gotten slightly better. I've seen mean, a vocal coach, probably. Probably seen a vocal coach. And I sat through seven seasons of Sons of Anarchy, so I'm I've fairly that, used yeah. to his ropey yeah. American accent. Is it, what's that one in Pacific Rim? I never thought about the future. <laughs> like, Dear God, Rally, shut Come on, up. Jax, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're drift compatible. 
so, as I say, you've got a solid supporting cast um, who seem to be made up of like the who's who of network television. Leslie Hope turns up from 24. Uh, Bobby Singer from Supernatural's there. They're all in there. Amazing. <laughs> and to be honest, the problem with the film is it is quite predictable. The twists and turns are... You, you, you know them a mile... From, you can tell them from a mile away because you... They are so in such intrinsic twists mm. to, to the genre, in a sense. And if the, there is some success to it, though, and that success largely comes from Del Toro, who, it's his design, it's always been his design, but you fear at a point that perhaps he risks becoming the sort of director that Tim Burton became, where he is a director more associated with his art department than he is with mm. his actual directorial style. Now, there is enough directorial style left to the film that it can stand, it can withstand that criticism. Yeah. But you sit and think, okay, it's got the look, it's got his his ghost design, and his ghosts look like they're on fire. And in actuality, That's when cool. you look closely, what it actually is, is they are, they have the cuts on their body, for instance, are expelling blood. But the blood is basically turning to gas as it leaves the body. And it looks like they're on fire constantly. But the fire is the same colour as them. Yeah. So it, it's a really interesting really effect. Cool I love that design. There are some shots in this movie. Tom Hiddleston standing before this great gothic door as the door, the double doors blow open and snow flows through. <laughs> you think, good God, that is the defining visual of this film. <laughs> good for you, GDT. Why not? And they do things like, yes, okay, there's enough to this. It does begin with a completely pointless in-media res moment that you just mm. think, well, why? I quite get <laughs> that. And then another completely pointless sort of prequely bit at the beginning as well, which I don't quite get. Okay. That's the thing. It is a film that you sit and you look at on the scales and think, you know what? Mostly good. I'll leave it at that. Mostly Most. good. But I'll give it one credit. What's that? Doesn't rely on jump scares. It builds genuine chills. And you know, when it's a director like Del Tire, I'll take that. Fine. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen. And we're back. So, interesting one this week was, yeah. um, I don't know if you know this, on Monday uh, we saw the DVD and digital download reissue of Lava. Ooh, the yeah. 2001... It was a weird one. It was, it was a comedy heist movie... A bit, crime type it was a fusion of absolutely everything and it was the debut film of joe tucker hmm. and uh, well this is the interesting one joe tucker has gone on to a uh, bunch of different products uh, products, products. Um, <laughs> but uh, lava has become championed by uh, reese shearsmith steve pemberton mm. you know the uh, league gentlemen guys, guys yeah. who've obviously gone on to do psycho bill and things like yeah. that and it's very fitting because that's that's this kind of film lava is very much of the ilk of things oh, like psychoville and psycho. inside number nine and um, also, Mike Lee is apparently a fan as well, which, as you said, that's kind of strange. Yeah. Mike Lee has a sense of humour. Yeah. But we got to talk to Joe Tucker about uh, the reissue of Lava and how, it, basically, its legacy has endured nearly 14 years after it opened. Joe, thanks for joining us. First of all, congratulations on the re-release of Lava after 15 years. Yes. Has it flown by? You know what? You know what? It has. It really, really has. We, um, we actually, uh, we, I actually put this the film into... Um, Portobello Film Festival a few weeks ago, and they actually they actually showed it, and uh, it, it actually it, it actually screened there around 15, 13, 14 years ago, and this time they screened it again, and it won one of their Golden Trellics. So it's almost it's almost if the audience were ready for it this time around. So, so you yeah, think it, uh, audiences are more already ready for it now than they were way back when? Uh, I 
think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of it was spoke about spoken about very positively with a certain kind of clique uh, clique of um, journalists and audiences at the time. But I think, in a broader sense, it is it has got more of a more of a, an appeal now. Yeah, I think it has. And you've obviously uh, developed uh, quite a fan base, quite a high profile fan base over the years, like Mike Lee, for example. Um, does that uh, does that aid in your confidence for the film? Is that a nice thing to have as it goes on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but I also think it more of it, it kind of indicates that it's it's still. I think it's still a very interesting film because it's, it's very hard to quantify. I mean, at, at the time, reviewers called it either a you know a, a dark hearted comedy or an urban thriller or a, or a, a hard hitting drama. And you know, it's it, even though it's got elements of, of all of all those three kind of genre aspects, it's um, I think it's still a film which is it's, it's a film of you know many contrasts and extremes. It's still got its own unique tone of things, so it's still kept its ability to um, surprise and entertain and shock. So so yeah. So has it uh, has it altered how you see the Notting Hill Carnival in the years since? Uh, not really, no. I mean, I've, I've been going to the carnival for maybe 20 years now. And I, I always knew it would be a, a, a fantastic kind of setting to have these very, very diverse set of characters uh, to meet in a very you know, plausible fashion. So um, the, 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 car, the carnival itself, I mean, hasn't changed in a way because it's a kind of yearly, perennial um, vortex of energy which kind of grips Notting Hill. And I think it's a very, very specific kind of energy. And I think that's, that's why the film... Still, kind of time travels to there, I think, because it's because of that setting. It kind of gives it a timelessness and a kind of um, yeah, otherworldliness. Even though the characters are very, you know, they're kind of drawn from kind of very authentic kind of subcultures. Funnily enough, that was actually my next question. Is that actually specifically the inspiration? The Notting Hill Carnival being such a sort of fixed point in culture that it never changes. Is that why you specifically went for that? I think it was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the time, it, it was actually hard to think of a of a plausible setting whereby you could have like you know gangs of yardies and all these kind of like this this kind of west london subculture which hadn't been kind of charted at all in, in terms of film you know you know the, the, only, the only film which had kind of alighted upon notting hill was the, the richard curtis one and, and whilst that's perfectly valid and and also true you know there, there, is, there is also or was at the time because notting hill has changed a lot there, there was this other underbelly you know which hadn't really been as i say charted in film so I forgot your question. <laughs> about, right, the, about the fixed cultural point of the Notting Hill Carnival. But uh, on to the next, my next question. Um, the film is finally seeing a digital release. Yeah. Uh, is, is that for you an achievement? Do you think that's something to see it endure in that way? I think so, because you know, I, was always, uh, I was always aware that the film, you know, it, it, it only had a, a very short window at the time to kind of, to kind, to kind of find an audience. I mean, this is back in the day when you, know, you just had a, a very short cinema release. And you waited like you know nine months for it to go on DVD, but now I, I think just just because of the actual apparatus of the way like films do, you know, th there's the ability, ability now for films to eventually find their audience. And I, and I hope Lava will now continue to do that. Lava is out now on DVD and digital download, rated 18. So should we have some uh, some film news before we carry on? Yeah, now? let's have a couple more. Uh... Pieces. Right. So, oh, Jennifer Lawrence. This is after she quit uh, the Rosie Project. Yeah. She's got. Have you heard about her other project? And she's she's gone to instead. Um, is this for essay writing? Well, not essay writing. Well, that's apparently more of a hobby. Okay. Um, she's got that thing she's going to do with uh, Trainwreck as well. Trainwreck. 
Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer, yeah, yeah of Amy course. Schumer. She yeah. did that thing with Amy Bobby Schumer just, as well with her sister. Yeah. She's writing that. Mm. Uh, but apparently she did quit uh, The Rosie Project in order to basically have a break from her hectic schedule. Although she has apparently entered talks with Darren Aronofsky to join his yeah. secretive upcoming mm. indie project that he's got on the go. So we shall see what comes of that. Apparently Darinovsky is going around talking to basically everyone about the the upcoming project. Which, well, which that's secretive then, isn't not it? Not really. really. No, no one no one knows anything about it though. It's basically <laughs> I'm Darin... doing this, but I'm not telling you anything yeah, about it. Yeah, I think it. it's like he turns up at your party your dinner party and says, Listen, uh while I'm here, yeah. I've got this film. I can't say anything about it, but you want to be in it. I, th- I think that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And you kinda of have to debate, well, is it gonna be Black Swan or is it gonna be the fountain, Darren? Come on, we need to, we need oh, we need an inkling. Yeah. <laughs> we need an inkling here, Darren. It's gonna be Black Swan or Noah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Uh in terms of uh eighties animated series and toy lines becoming uh, big screen reboots, here's one that uh, will uh, catch you slightly off guard. Dino Riders. Yeah, I'm all on board for this. Yeah, well, am I the only one thinking, well, don't reboot that. Just make it into Jurassic 5 or whatever we're going to call it. <laughs> that's, Not everyone's similar to Motorized Dinosaurs. Yeah, I'm sorry, but just get, like a, get John Goodman to be Vincent D'Onofrio's older brother. That's my answer oh, for everything now. Yeah, just get John Goodman. My answer for everything. Since, since he was announced to be in Cotton. Yeah, yeah. Just, just get John Goodman. He'll be Vincent D'Onofrio's older brother. He also has the familial need to militarize Dinosaurs. Yeah. It's, it's like a family trait. It's a family trait. Yeah. Granddad raised, you know, Granddad raised them. Like yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they grew up around the fire with Granddad being told, you know, the virtues of militarizing animals, and so yeah, <laughs> that's how it works. Who, who will play the Granddad in the like flashback? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, Rip Torn would be a very, very good choice. Yeah. Uh, if you want to go really just nuts, uh, Rip Taylor. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I <get> militarized <laughs> <laughs> Militarising and confetti. <laughs> Militarising fling confetti off them. But uh, yeah, so Dino Riders, um, the popular toy line, it looks like that is going to become the next mm. big screen toy adaptation. Yeah. Because we can't have enough of those, no. it seems. So what's next on our review docket then? Next we have Hotel Transylvania 2. Um, I recently watched the first one for the first time. I really enjoyed the first one, so I hope that it carries on. No, I did enjoy the first one as well. Now, my thing with it is I enjoyed it, but I did think it was quite forgettable. Uh, the thing I remember more than anything about the first Hotel Transylvania movie was it's uh, Gendy Tartakovsky. Uh, directing and it is his style of animation and I really like his style of animation he's the guy that brought us Samurai Jack and Johnny Bravo and okay cool I can get on board with this they even gave him a Star Wars animated series at one point and and it was one of the best ones Um, so he's now back Hotel Transylvania 2 the Drac Pack is back I believe is what one of the posters uh, actually proclaims Uh, this time around Dracula has sort of finally made peace with his vampire daughter having married a human so Mavis and Johnny have married they have gone on as well the movie opens with their wedding it then cuts forward to a, a couple of months to Mavis announcing that she's now expecting and then cuts forward even further than that to the delivery of the young boy Dennis, or as Dracula calls him, Denisovich. Is his vampire name? <laughs> because no one knows whether or not he actually is human, or if he's vampire, yeah, or if he's both. Yeah. Now, we get told a set of rules very early on, which is, if you are a vampire, your fangs must come through before your fifth birthday. Now, if they don't come through early, that's fine, because you might be a late fanger. 
This is what we're told. It's like a late bloomer. Late right? bloomer, but he's a late, yeah, late banger. And it turns out Denisovich, when we take another time jump to when he's nearly five years old, is most definitely a late fanger. He's also pretty much a standard five-year-old human boy. He likes what, what can only be described as Sesame Street. His idea of monsters mm. are the sort of Sesame Street type things. And Dracula and Mavis have very, very differing cultural ideas over how to raise... Young Denisovich or Dennis. That's a great name, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and meanwhile, you've got Johnny as well, who's now working at the hotel as the human uh. human tourism liaison, coming up with ways <laughs> to modernise Hotel Transylvania and bring in human customers. Mm. I want to preface this by saying as well, Johnny's parents are a part of this film, and they are played, and I am not making this up, by Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... When, it's, when Mavis can't handle the inherent danger of Hotel Transylvania as regards her human child, which can't take it anymore, she decides maybe she should move to California and raise Denisovich or Dennis in the suburbs where he's safe. And she and Johnny go on a holiday to explore this concept. While she's gone, however, Dracula comes up with an idea of his own, which is he and his friends are going to take Denisovich <laughs> round all of their old haunts Literal Little haunts, haunts. Yep. and scare the fangs out of him. Here's a clip. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I Mommy, I'm too old are. for lullabies. What? That's not how that one goes. This is the way most people sing it. Most people? What's wrong with suffer, suffer, scream in pain? Blood is spilling from your brain. Daddy. Come on, you know how I sang it to you. Zombies gnaw you like a plum, piercing cries and you succumb. Suffer, suffer, scream in pain, you will never breathe again. Still works. The cast are all back. You've got Adam Sandler as Dracula. You've got Kevin James, Steve Buscemi, Dave, uh, David Spade, CeeLo Green. And not CeeLo Green. Is it not CeeLo Green? Do you know? Did you not know who this is? I thought CeeLo Green. Who oh, is it? Oh, this this is a treat. Okay. Is it not CeeLo Green? It was CeeLo Green, the first one. And then CeeLo Green had some controversies. Yes, yeah. there is that. Yes, it, I did it, wonder. It, who is it, it now? some remarks. Keegan Michael Key. It is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Sorry, it is. Totally, I did know that, and I've forgotten. Although. Keegan Michael Key does such a good CeeLo Green impression that you will forget that. That's why I've forgotten it. Although yeah. I did notice he was on the That's it. credits. Um, oh, poor CeeLo, as if uh, Begin know. Again. He needed it after Begin Again. I liked him in Begin I Again. I like yeah. Begin Again. Yeah, he just, I think he needed another boost after that. But um, this is a lot of fun. The, the Tartakovsky yeah. animation is as fun to revel in as it's, it's really always been. It's a really fun setup that you gave. It is, and yeah. um, it's there's so much comedy to this. There is a piece of stunt casting. In fact, it is marketed quite heavily. There is a piece of stunt casting for this film, which is Dracula's father. I know about played this. by who's played by Mel Brooks mm. as Vlad. Amazing, and it's pitch perfect casting. It is fun. I thought it was going to be someone like uh, Jerry Stiller or someone like that. Yeah, but which would have been good. Which would, would have worked just as well. But uh, it, it is a lot of fun. It's got the macabre humour that made the first one so good. Like, for instance, uh, Dracula's take on what to feed a pregnant woman. Oh, you need to eat more spiders and blood pudding. Only then will the vampire fetus be strong. <laughs> You know, think, oh, and, and goat bile and things like right. that. <laughs> it's brilliant. Such funny. It's one of those ones that you watch and you rev it. I laughed quite a few times at it. 
and there's it does send up it does the anachronistic sort of let's send up modern culture by using antiquated victorian ideas so for instance dracula's take on health and safety is borderline hilarious and as always, you've got Steve Buscemi as uh, Wayne the Werewolf. Wayne the Werewolf, yeah. Wayne the he's werewolf. got like a pack of 20, 20 cubs. And then some now, because that's oh. it, that's increased. Oh, okay. And, yeah, it's, it's so much. There's so much to love in it that you find yourself sitting there watching and thinking, wow, if I had a young child of my own, this this is I, this is the kind of thing I would love to do with them. This, mm. is the kind of, this is the kind of thing I would take them to see merrily and not think twice about it. Yeah. Because there is, it's an all-rounder family fun film. There is spectacle, there is 3D joy to be had there's in it. There's things for grown-ups in there. There's things, well not yeah. really, it's not really for, I wouldn't say it's adult skewed humour, it's not crass in that Shrek-like way. Well you see, no, because I I don't like that about Shrek. No, neither all. do I. No. I mean the Adults can get on board with it as well. They can they can enjoy it the way that they would have done when they were younger. There is relatable yeah. humour in there. There's um, for one thing, there is a story aspect of um, treating uh, the marriage of Johnny and uh, Mavis as in American suburban standards a mixed race marriage, which is actually done quite <laughs> cleverly. Um, I believe there's actually a cameo from what I think is Seth Rogen as a hipster who they just mistake for a monster, um, <laughs> cool. which I think is great. I'm not a monster. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, he just has a beard. Does he, does he do his laugh? <laughs> no, no, he does it. He's quite, quite straight-faced. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of fun in it. There's a lot of spectacle. There's a lot of joy, a lot of laughs. There's it some is. moving sort of father-daughter bits. There's a lot of that sort of knowing your place sort of mentality. The only thing I had with it was the film, and this is on an adult level, the film does cop out very slightly on, particularly having already done the mixed-race marriage thing, the film cops out very slightly on exactly what Denisovich is by... You think you could have taken... By not taking the braver stance, hmm. it, it does feel like they missed the chance to do something a little bit braver, but the film is still entertaining. The film is still very, very enjoyable, so you give it a pass for that, to be honest. It did, to be fair, really make me want to watch Hotel Transylvania 1. Again, Which is great. I will admit. Because I say I don't remember it, but I, I do remember really enjoying it. Hmm. So we'll do one, one bit of film news then before we go on to the programme. Yeah. Um, Steve Zahn, have you heard about this one? Yeah, I have. Steve Zahn yeah. has joined the cast of War for the Planet of the Apes. As a monkey. As a monkey? Yeah. Yes. He's going to be mo-capping. It's uh, great. That's awesome. I would love Steve Zahn to have an amazing career from this point on. Because if he wins an Oscar, that would mean that the three principal players of the film Sahara are all Oscar winners. Oh dear God, that's actually true as well, isn't it? McConaughey, Ralph Cruz. Yeah, but it, oh, do you know I always get Steve Zahn confused with uh, who's the sidekick in National Treasure? Oh, oh he's Doug <laughs> in The Hangover. Yeah. I always forget. But uh, oh, because they, 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 they are yeah. kind of the same character, aren't they? Similar, yeah. But uh, oh, that's really going to bug me. Who's the, the, the witty sidekick? Oh, never mind. But yes, yeah, so Steve Zahn is going to be mo-capping, as you put it, so yeah. for. Uh, War, War for the Planet of the Apes, opposite the likes of Gabriel Shavara, uh, Andy Serkis, and of course Woody Harrelson as the Colonel. I don't want. To, I don't want to even know his actual name. No, no I just want I to don't. be the Colonel. I do. I want him to be the Colonel. Yeah. That's it. I'm wondering though, are we, are we going to get this one from the perspective of the apes, or is it going to be from the perspective? Because the last one I would argue is from the perspective of the humans. Well, the first twenty minutes. Uh, the first, the first no, twenty minutes. No dialogue. It's yeah. just just apes. That's why I love the first one. The second one so much. But, 
Right, so on to the programme then. Right, where to begin with this? So this, this is, is uh, uh, it's, uh, Stephen Frears, uh, Lance Armstrong. Yeah, Lance Armstrong. Stephen Frears, who brought us the delightful High Fidelity and the less delightful yes. The Queen. And he has oh, the Queen's good. Lady Favourite is not good. Lady Favourite is not good. No, no it is not. Uh, so he's now brought us uh, this take on the Lance Armstrong story, uh, which is based on the novel Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh. Now that is a very important thing to, cons- to take into consideration when you start watching the film, because presumably everyone who listens to this knows the story of uh, Lance mm-hmm. Armstrong, which is... I mean, we recently reviewed a documentary two, about 18 months ago. We yeah. reviewed The Armstrong Lie, mm-hmm. which I actually rewatched after having seen the programme yeah. because I noticed something that made me want to rewatch it. The level of background detail in the film is astonishing. Genuinely astonishing. Having seen the actual documentary, mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's the thing from... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Such attention to detail. Like, wow, that's I mean, really impressive. So, Ben Foster's playing Lance Armstrong in a film based on the book by David Walsh. David Walsh, in reality, was sued by Lance Armstrong for libel and had to and forced the Sunday Times to fork over 300 grand. Which, when Lance Armstrong was then discovered and confessed yeah. years later, the Sunday Times got back. And David Walsh got a very, very sincere apology as a result. Um, I think... What he's now, Lance Armstrong is currently being sued for more than a hundred million as a result of all of the lawsuits. That <laughs> it makes actually, a million grand look like chump change. It kind of does. Yeah. But here's where it gets interesting. So, because it's based on the book by David Walsh, it takes David Walsh's perspective somewhat into consideration. David Walsh is one of the two principal characters of the film. It is the story of Lance Armstrong, it's the story of David Walsh as well, but primarily Armstrong. So what you have is Lance Armstrong from his humble beginnings on the Tour de France circuit when he can't win to save his life to when he then gets cancer to when he beats said testicular cancer to then encountering uh, Michele, Michele, Michele? Michele. Michele Ferrari. Michele yeah. Ferrari, I think I believe his name is. Played by uh, Guillaume Canet from uh, Tell No One. Mm-hmm. And believe me, he's doing the best. Everyone involved in the film, I should point this out, first and foremost, they are doing the best impersonations imaginable of the actual people they are playing. <laughs> Guillaume Canet's portrayal of Michele Ferrari is eerie. Really eerie. Because it's if, if you ever see an yeah. interview with Michele Ferrari, it's like watching Jose uh, Mourinho. Yeah. It's like watching the Jose <laughs> Mourinho of science. <laughs> that's, the only way, that's the only way to describe it. The human body is like a machine. I am like a mechanic, but I am excellent mechanic. What I want is I want the best results from human from human physiology. It's all over. I love him. I think he's amazing. Good. He's amazing. It's not that good, actually. That's, that, was, that was my impersonation of my dad. But anyway. Um, so, uh, following through um, Lance Armstrong's beginnings of his relationship with Michele Ferrari, which then obviously involves certain medications, mm. to yeah. Armstrong then storming the Tour de France for seven straight years. Yeah, of course. Fighting off allegations of doping as well, the lengths to which are explored on screen, and then, of course, his downfall as a result. Here's a clip. Uh, Dr. Ferrari made a statement about EPO. Do you remember that? No. Did you ever visit Michaela Ferrari? I did know him. How did you know him? In cycling, you go to races, there are lots of people, small community. Did you ever visit him? Did I get tested by him? Did I go there and get consulted on certain things? Perhaps. So you did? Sorry, just because the tape recorder won't really pick up on your body language. Can I get a yes or a no on that? Perhaps. So like I said about it being based on the, the book by Walsh, 
the film makes no bones within about two minutes of yeah, don't. Yeah, he's, he's doping. Yeah. He's doing, and he's doing it at this stage. And he's doing it that. Stage. And we're being very upfront about, yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah. So you think, well, okay, you know what? Fair enough. It's based on Walsh's book. That's fine. We can take it that way. It's not a really, really big problem. We're not watching a documentary. It's a fictionalized drama. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. The big problem comes elsewhere in terms of because. You learn nothing new about the, the Lance Armstrong story at all. If you've ever seen the Armstrong lie, you could snooze. Yeah. Exactly, you can snooze through this. You can miss entire chunks of it, wake up and then go, all right, so, oh, so if we're here, out. that means I've just missed the bit when... Okay, yeah. yeah. Because the story is fairly straightforward and fairly simplistic. And also because Lance Armstrong was such a public uh, figure, certain iconic public performances of his, press conferences, things like that, are repeated here. By Foster with this very specific performance, which it does work as a straight impersonation. However, it verges on American psycho territory, as in the way they have chosen to write Armstrong at times is that Patrick Bateman-like, he-will-murder-you type performance. There is a moment of Ben Foster in front of the mirror simply repeating the words, I have never tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. I've never tested positive. I have never oh. tested positive for performance-enhancing yeah. And you watch, and his face just becomes increasingly disturbing to, to witness. And you know, you've chosen to write this this way. Ben Foster isn't doing anything that the script doesn't call for. Ben Foster is actually kind of dialing it down strategy. I think Foster is a great actor. I do. That's why. I think yeah. even even in films that do not deserve him, he is one of the best things in them. Like Last Stand. I'm thinking of Hostage as well. Oh, of course, yeah. The, the Bruce Willis film Hostage, mm. which if you tell me that wasn't written as an abort Die Hard sequel, then I will tell you you're full of crap. Because yeah, <laughs> that quite clearly was one of the aborted Die Hard yeah. ones. And Ben Foster always delivers. He can he can turn up in the worst X-Men movie and still deliver. Mm. And that genuinely happened. <laughs> but the script just frankly isn't up to much. We do get some some perks from uh, Chris O'Dowd's performance as Walsh, which is played naturally enough and quite predictably with an immense amount of sympathy. They do paint him as a rather tragic figure. And one scene in particular in which his campaign against Armstrong is ruining the lives of his fellow journalists is painted as this great tragic moment. But you think, I wonder how much of that, though, is based on the record and not so much on what Walsh has told people. Yeah. And you do wonder, because Walsh, in interviews, comes across a lot less sympathetic than the film paints him. So I think there is some some embellishing there. It's interesting if he had quite a big part in actually producing this film. Was he some kind of consultant, I would imagine? Or... You would imagine he would have to. Yeah, like I've not, he, I've like not or something, yeah. But, uh, as I say, everyone involved is doing... It, it, does a great, it puts in a great performance. I particularly like Kane as... Um, yeah. As as Michele Ferrari, uh, but I also like Jesse Plemons uh, from as a oh, Floyd Meth Landon. Damon. Yeah. Meth Damon, Meth yeah. Damon, yeah, and that's it because he is the breakout star. He is arguably the great success story of Breaking Bad, because whereas you know, the Central Two had all those years to basically break out, yeah, Jesse Plemons turned up for four episodes and owned the show. Yeah. Wow, really? It's creepy, Todd. Yeah, yes, yeah, creepy, Todd. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, so that's the issue with it. Stephen Frears mines something of a faint essence of directorial flair out of it, but it all does feel quite televisual given the level of writing on display. It does feel like a TV movie retelling of the story. You know the kind that you used to get within six months of something happening in the news? Yeah, it'd show up on ITV. Show up on ITV. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it's more of a Hallmark Channel movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the Lance Armstrong story. <laughs> Saddle saw the Lance Armstrong story. <laughs> that how has no one done that? Uh. Wait, there'll be like a parody film. There'll be a parody film. Yeah, definitely. But I did enjoy it because I am interested in the story, but I enjoyed it in the way that... Do you know, a great example to use, hmm. right? And, and this sounds completely random, but believe me, there is a point to it. Captain America. Remember yeah. four, four years ago when we got Captain America, the first Avenger? If you were a combat fan, you knew that story inside and out. Yeah. There, there was no new way to tell that story. So you went to the film, and they told you the story again. And you're like... Okay, I learned nothing new. I got nothing new from this story, but I had a decent enough time watching it, and I enjoyed seeing this, this, and this brought to life. So I'm not going to complain. That's exactly what you get with the program. I almost called it the Armstrong Line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. do not get them confused. No, I mean it would have been funny if they called this the Armstrong Truth, but never mind. Oh, that would be even better. Imagine. Why come up with such good titles? <laughs> I know. Imagine, imagine that. something about Lance Armstrong. I just come up with really good uh, yeah. titles for him. Let's see if we can dig anything else out of the film news now. I'm sure we can find something. We're really burning through them. Uh, well, okay, one that I, I really loved, actually, this week, because it involves the WWE. And I know what this is. Do you know what this yeah. is? Josh Gad mm. and his writing partner have been hired by the WWE to write Gorgeous George, which is going to be a biopic of Gorgeous George Wagner. Now, do you, do you know George Wagner? Do you know his yeah. story a little yeah, bit? Yeah, a little bit. He is effectively the pioneer of the larger-than-life uh, celebrity personality. The the person had been Muhammad Ali and James Brown credit him as the inspiration for their personas. And you think, okay, wow, that's that's something really that, yeah. iconic. And Wilson and I spoke about this, and we're just like, don't envy the guy who has to cast that because Rip Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> it's fussy, fussy, fussy. Rip Taylor or John Goodman? <laughs> John Goodman. <laughs> Uh, strangely enough, it's a shame that Hulk Hogan's fallen from grace because that kind of would have worked. Oh, that would have worked. But uh, yeah, so George Wagner, who was um, arguably the first big star of mainstream wrestling, when wrestling moved to TV in the late 40s, early 50s, because the TV networks were still relatively new at that time in the US and they needed cheap content to fill their airtime, mm. wrestling provided that in spades. And as a result, the flamboyant personality of Gorgeous George, as he was known, <laughs> became the first popular main made him the first popular mainstream wrestler for the general audience and you look at wrestling now for the rock for instance a great example yeah, the rock absolutely. john cena triple h you look at these large and they're all larger than life now yeah. that's the standard now but they got their inspiration from somewhere and it'd be yeah. interesting there's no such where. thing as a dull wrestler now is there no we've all got a backstory we've except you daniel name. bryant no one likes you daniel <laughs> bryant go away daniel bryant <laughs> So should we? What have we got to review next? Then uh, coming up next, we censored have censored voices. Uh, censored voices, censored voices yeah. right? This is so interesting. I, I don't know anything about this. You so know nothing about film it. In, yeah. Okay, so this is uh, the second documentary from Morlaushi, who brought us Israel Limited about five or so years ago, which was a story about uh, trying to get foreign investment into uh, Israel. Now this also involves Israel, and uh, I believe this is produced by BBC Storyville. As well, so I think it's a limited theatrical, and then it goes yeah. to Storyville. And you can, I, I would recommend definitely checking it out when it's on there. I'm sort of spoiling the end of this review while I'm saying <laughs> that. But uh, so this is the story of the Six Day War in the late '60s. Are you familiar with this? So the Six Day War was when Israel fought back <laughs> for six days. For six days, because that's, like, no, that's all they needed. Now, 
They uh, they took on uh, the might of Jordan and Egypt and the Sudan and well they they emerged victorious and at the time the soldiers were interviewed with a with an audio recorder and the Israeli government censored the majority of them they they only allowed a certain number of these recordings out now decades later Morlaoshi has uncovered the rest of them. And this is where it gets very interesting, because rather than simply present us with these recordings, Molaoshi has come up with a brilliant idea. She has gotten the original interviewees to come back and play their own recordings in complete silence. They sit there in silence Ooh. and simply play the recordings. <laughs> Don't silent the whole time. Yeah. They, do. They, do, they do interact with them. But, uh, no one will speak. <laughs> and so we get to not only hear their reactions at the time, we get to hear reactions now. All of this is intercut with archival footage... So we get the perspective of just after the battle and decades after yeah. the battle. And the responses do vary and they do break hearts in the process. So the weird thing with the, with, with censored voices is, I mean, not a weird thing, but a very successful thing, is it is very much a case of differing perspectives. But it's different perspectives from the same person. Some of them differ, some of them don't. But when they do differ, they always tend to go in the same way. It tends to be they were angry then, they are they are more pacifistic now. Mm. And you think, okay, that kind of makes sense because bear in mind these are all old men now. Yeah. I mean, these are we're talking about really old guys now. And uh, I mean, to be fair, even as old men, they do look like the kind of guys you wouldn't particularly want to try <laughs> with. You want to mess with? I mean, if you did, if Munich hadn't already taught you that you simply do not mess with Israel, <laughs> this this film will more or less solidify that notion for you. Um, it is though very very moving. Uh, very, very haunting in places as well. And it allows you a perspective, an internal and then a retro, uh, sort of retrospective perspective on something that we don't really know about in general. Anyway, it's not really a big part of the history books, the Six Day War. It's something that sort of, it's a passing, it's something that gets a passing mention at best. And this takes you right into it. And it is a frontline perspective on the horrors of war and the depths to the depths of absolutely terrible activity a human being can sink to in the conflict of battle and you think wow okay i, I never really thought about it from that way and it is like i say it's just chilling when it needs to be it is moving when it was it never glorifies that's something i will give it credit for and everyone involved makes a concerted effort not to glorify they are all they're regretful at the time and they're regret, even more regretful now in some cases they do not glorify what they did they did it in the name of the state and they take a very dim view of the things they themselves have to do and you think okay it's nice to know because we tend to have this weird historical perspective i'm trying to have this conversation without talking about israel as a political thing now because it's i'm not in, yeah. i'm in yeah. no way qualified <laughs> to talk about israel it has this uh this, this ability to to highlight that even in the late 60s, there was something of what we think of as a contemporary perspective on war, even then. Mm. So we have this sort of, what we think of as a 21st century perspective on, for instance, the war on terror, things like that. You think, actually, this has always been the case. This was around then. There were people who spoke out and gave their feelings and felt a certain way then that we don't think they did. We, we, look, we look back at things like World War II and we just assume that everyone was like, Kill the other side. We just kill them. <laughs> there were people who who thought the way we sort of do now, and this film does a very, very good job of highlighting that, I think. 
but I do like uh, Morlaoshi's work here. She has crafted a very solid visual narrative as well as an audio narrative for it. Because you could watch the films either, mm. and it would tell the story equally well. You could watch this as a radio play. Listen, uh, watch to it. It. Listen to it as a radio yeah. play, sorry. And, and it would work it equally work. well, I mean, provided you could somehow dub the... Because uh, they're obviously yeah. all in, uh, in Israeli. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I was genuinely glued glued to the screen the entire time, edge of my seat, interested in what was going on. It was 88 minutes. I think, okay, this is a perfect length. I think there is a, there's about 10 minutes where it does float a little bit, we think. It just flounders slightly for about 10 minutes towards the end of the second act. If you can really attribute a documentary. Acts, yeah. If you can attribute a documentary to having a second act. But other than that, I found it a really solid, really engrossing and moving documentary. Tell you what, then, before we get to the last review, let's let's do all of our because we've got a couple of comic book ones. Yeah, I've got yeah. a couple, you've got one. I've so. just found one. Yeah. Okay, you, well, you go with yours first. Okay, so uh, the Doctor Strange film that yep. I am really, really looking forward to. Fantastic looking cast. Uh, Tilda Swinton, Benedict Cumberbatch, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Yeah, Matt Mickelson. Yeah, Matt Mickelson. Rachel and McAdams. Rachel McAdams. Yeah. Now, this news is about Rachel McAdams. Okay. Um, Hit so me. I will. Um, so, this news has not been completely 100% like official. It is a rumour she might be the character of Night Nurse. Which uh, has its own Marvel comic book. Uh, we thought it was uh, Rosario Dawson. Rosario Dawson, because she's in uh, and, and Daredevil. She, and she is a nurse. And she is a nurse, so yeah. we thought they'd rejigged her into that. No, but... she's going to be somewhere completely different. And yeah. uh, it's, it's quite interesting, because every thought Rachel McAdams would just be like a romantic lead for Doctor Strange. Yes. And now it seems like she's got a lot more to do in this I film. I did be, say, actually, a while nice. back, that I hoped... I think we had the discussion, where I said I hoped that Rachel McAdams wasn't a love interest. She was just like the Natalie Portman kind of... yeah. That, I think because they reduced Natalie Portman to a love interest, I just, I, I yeah. think, I'm not interested in it. I want her to have an actual character. Hmm. Uh, meanwhile, other Marvel news. Um, it yeah. has now been confirmed that Mark Ruffalo is in negotiations with Marvel yeah. to appear as the Hulk in Thor Ragnarok to be directed, as you reminded us the other week, by Taika Waititi. That's going to be amazing. With Hulk and Thor on what is being referred to as a cosmic road trip. <laughs> really? I want it to be Marvel doing Plane Strange and Automobiles. That would be amazing. Be. <laughs> Hulk's Thor's an author. Horse. It's horse? Horse? <laughs> Thor's, Thor's Hulk's. Um, oh, what's the bridge thing called? Thor's oh, Hulk's and Bifrosts. There we are. Yeah. Horse. <laughs> Horse, Hulk's, and Bifrosts. Now that's a film. <laughs> Get on that Marvel Phase 4. <laughs> shall we take it all the way back in a circular motion to Rosario Dawson, though? Yes. Who is so going it's... to be providing the voice? Of Batgirl in the Lego Batman movie. Now that, that is a cast. That is it? a cast. Opposite with the likes of Will Arnett as Batman, Michael Cera as yeah. uh, as Robin. And yeah, yeah, and Zach Galifianakis as, as the, the Joker. Joker. That was it. That was the one I couldn't remember. Mm. So yeah, it's, that's a nice little trio of comic book bits. Absolutely. There. So from comic books, then onto zombie movies. Mm. Let's let's cover cooties. <laughs> Which uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of. I know you're a big fan yes, of as well. And this is a strange one because this is regarded as it has a very, very limited theatrical run, but it's actually now also out on uh, DVD and Blu-ray digital download. Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, segues nicely into our competition plug for the week. It's almost like we've planned it. Almost like, like. Yeah. it's not at all like we just pull these things out of our no. ass at a moment's notice. <laughs> yeah. We're not always this professional. <laughs> no, we're not. Um, so of course, you can go to onscreenfilm.com, our competition section. Currently, we have competitions for The Programme. You can win goodies from The Programme. Uh, Ed Sheeran's Jumpers for Goalposts concert yeah. event movie, which Pretty is on... cool prizes, actually, for that. that. That's signed posters and soundtracks yeah. as well. I'm a big fan, but... I like Ed. I like a bit of Ed Sheeran every now and again. I think he's a nice guy. I just don't want to ever hear him sing, ever. 
Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I uh, I have a 52 year old mother, so I, I'm used oh, to hearing. Fair a lot enough, of, yeah. I hear a lot of Ed Sheeran, um, and we also have prizes for, of course, cooties. We're giving away uh, DVD copies of cooties. But is it worth entering? Let's get to the review. Mm. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> it is. Everybody should see cooties. Um, so Cooties is the story of a small town elementary school. Um, on his first day as a substitute teacher, a failed writer, Clint, played by Elijah Wood, discovers that a, a zombie, a zombie virus caused by uh, infected chicken, chicken nuggets, yeah. is turning everyone below the age of puberty into feral carnivorous flesh-eating zombies. So Clint and his fellow teachers must band together to fend off the zombie horde and escape the school. But it turns out that most of these teachers have their own individual problems, which might be just as problematic as the feral zombies themselves. <laughs> Here's a clip. Conditioning of air. So this duck takes us to the teacher's lounge. Guys, we take the duck to the lounge, we, we get Calvin something from the vending machine, and we grab Wade's keys. We get back here, fix Calvin up, and take the duck as close to the parking lot as possible. If we're near the office, we should grab our cell phones too. Right. Yeah, but who's going up into that thing? Who's teensy-weensy enough to fit up? Me? No, 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 no. No, I, no, I, I definitely don't do brave stuff. Like, I've never even been camping. I have a blog. I get excited about Apple products. That's what I'm comfortable with. So Edgar Wright has a lot to answer for, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. We're trying to point that out. Yeah. Um, this is zombie fad that we've, we're now into, I think we're now into the second decade of. Because although you can argue that it started with 28 Days Later, I tend to think that it started with the double header of Sean and Dawn in 2004. Yeah. Because they were out within six weeks of each other. They were, yeah. I, sure. I like that Dawn remake. I like that Dawn of the Dead remake with its Johnny Cash opening. Yeah. I do. And then it's uh, <laughs> down with the sickness ending. But oh, what a soundtrack that film had. But uh, So we had Sean and Dawn in 2004, which I believe was February and April yeah. in, in 2004. And ever since, we have not seen the end of zombies. They are everywhere. I mean, God, they're even on telly now. Tally, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're on your TV yeah. now. There's at least four TV shows I can name off the top of my head. I have to do with zombies. And, and two of them are from the same source as well, Walking Dead. <laughs> they are, Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, Z Nation, Eyes on Me. Yeah, it's get, it's getting a bit much. But the thing is that most of these are disappointments. Most of them never really go anywhere. And this tends to be the case with novelty horror anyway. You look at things like Lava Lanch, it's just not as good as it promises. Um, zombie movies tend to be of that ilk. You get to Cooties, however, and you've got a novelty concept that actually pays off. You've got a film that is genuinely funny. Yeah. And it is genuinely horrific and, and, and in your face grisly and just repulsive. So gory. So gory. Yeah. But it's also really sharply written. Yeah. And this is, I believe this is a debut of a film as well. I forget the name of this. Two guys that have done it. Uh, Jonathan uh, Millet. Millet and Murnion, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Carrie Murnion. Carrie Millet. I knew the surname is Millet and Murnion. I didn't know that's, first that's a good Millet and Murnion. Millet and Murnion. That's it. I could see it's them. Like a cop show. <laughs> I, I think this is a debut. They are really, yeah. really good here. But uh, the the writer, uh, Lee Wannell. Lee Wannell's written this as yeah. well, and he also stars. He does. He he is the kind of like takeaway performance. That's this. exactly yeah. what I was going to say as well. The cast are all really good. Elijah Wood is doing that thing that Elijah Wood does really well, which is playing this sort of geek friendly. He, he's like a really likable Will Wheaton. That's how I think of <laughs> Elijah Wood. He is like a really likable mainstream Will Wheaton. Yeah. 
Wheaton, sorry, and uh, Wheaton, and then you've got Alison Pill, who just seemingly is on this crusade to prove herself to be this generation's Gina Davis, uh, which which is not a bad thing, not no. at all. Just please find more to do in your middle age years than Gina Davis has, and uh, Rain Wilson, who's sort of sending up his own image because I think we so closely associate him with the nerdish office character now. Yeah, he is not, the opposite of this. He's, he's, nice, he's, he's like uh, a jock. He's he's like a John C. McGinley character. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Down to facial hair. Down to facial hair. You can see Dr. Cox. You kind of can. Um, You've got Jack Mabrea, who is just playing Jack Mabrea. Yeah. But in that way that Jack Mabrea is always fun to see playing Jack Mabrea. It it is just an enjoyable performance. And then, of course, Lee Wanell, who is the standout, the MVP of this film. So funny. Gets all the best lines. Gets all the best moments. Mm. Just has this off-kilter... Just oh, not humorous, quite just, right, yeah. macabre type. And he gets a lot of like kind of big things to do as well. He gets a lot of heavy lifting. He gets to do all the like exposition bits, something that could be quite heavy and quite clunky, but it's not with the way that he delivers it. Directorially, I think when it's playing it straight, it seems to look like a Robert Rodriguez movie, and <laughs> yeah. when it goes briefly off kilter, it tends to go more Edgar Wright. And it did remind me of the faculty, but I don't know if that's just because Elijah Wood is it. I thought that as well, but also the school aspect. I would love it to just be like the same school, and now he's he's a teacher there. There was a rumour at one point, I think John Dickinson was the one that told me, there was a rumour that at one point Elijah Wood's character was going to be his faculty character. That's amazing. Now grown yeah. up, a failed writer. Yeah. And, and you think, okay, good kind of work. Um, obviously that's not the case, but the film is still so enjoyable, so funny, so grisly. It is the perfect beer and pizza movie in one sense, mm. but don't order the meat feast. That's just a recommendation. If you're going to do this as a beer and pizza don't, movie... Don't get the chicken nuggets. Don't get the chicken nuggets, and for God's sake, skip the meat feast. And also, pop along to onscreenfilm.com, go in the competition section, and <laughs> enter to win a copy of it, because you will not regret it. The no. film is awesome! And I'm giving it Film of the Week as a result. Uh, yeah. I'll do, well, you're not going to give it to Pan, are you? I'm not going to give it to Pan. <laughs> what a shocker. Oh, God, no. Should we have a look at what's next week, then? What have we got to come? Yeah. We'll so we've got some interesting ones next week. We've got uh, Vin Diesel as the last witch hunter. I want to look yeah. forward to. Oh, we'll see. Vin Diesel, Elijah Wood, Michael Caine. <laughs> I, 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 I am looking forward to it. And Mrs. Know you Know why. Nothing, Jon Snow. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a full name. Nobody knows her name, I don't think. She's just Mrs. You Know Nothing, oh, Jon Snow. I didn't know her name, what? Yeah. Yeah, we've she, also got... She, she plays Egret. She plays... Okay, well, there you go. We've also got uh, Mississippi Grind, which is Ben Mendelsohn mm. and Ryan, oh, nice. Ryan Reynolds. It's a weird combo, but I'll go with work. it. We've got uh, Paper Planes, starring that great thespian Sam Worthington. Uh, we've got the documentary Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. That could be Whoa, kind of awesome. That's a good title. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we've got Listen to Me, Marlon which is the documentary narrated by Marlon Brando, yeah. which I've seen. It's, it is what it sounds like. Uh, we've got the British rom-com Between Two Worlds to look forward to, which is also the uh, acting debut of Example. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I'll be sure to check that one. Popular musical performer Example. example. I don't know what he's an example of. Someone who can't act. But still. And we've got uh, the latest in the Paranormal Activity series, Ghost Dimension 3D to look forward to. Because, you know, found footage, 3D. it's usually kept in 3D, isn't it? Usually filmed 3D. Clearly, because it yeah. makes complete sense. Oh, we should mention, of course, we now have access to a laser IMAX screen in we Sheffield. Do, yeah. We Let's do, yeah. We do. Cine World are, as if adding 4DX wasn't enough, they have now added laser projection to the IMAX. Have you ever seen a film in laser IMAX? I haven't. No, not yet. I've not seen a film in 4DX either. 
Uh, no, usually when I'm watching a film, I like to be stationary. I don't like things being <laughs> thrown at me. But Did I'll, you never go to Disneyland? I'll, 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 I'll give it a go. I have. Yeah. That's probably why. Just, yeah. Well, obviously, there are other cinemas available in Sheffield. However, if you want 4DX or IMAX or Laser IMAX, yeah. where we, you have to go to Cineworld, where you may as well get an unlimited card while you're there because I tend pressures and I still get use out of an unlimited card because there's still two films a week I have to see. So 15 quid a month, why not? And uh, well, I'm only doing this because I, I was asked as a favour. I am in no way paid by Cineworld. You're just a corporate shill. I'm not a corporate shill in this case. It was genuinely a favour for Kate, who works there, who said, could you just give us a plug? I said, why not? You can check. I'm not even on their press list. So it's in no way, it's in no way corporate back-scratching. Just so we're clear. So that brings us to a close nicely this week. This has been the Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. Um, we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Offscreen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com.